Let's Talk Money. Today, I have a very special guest joining us who is my dad. Larry Steckler is a certified financial planner. He is the owner of Capital Financial Consultants Group and has been helping guide people through their finances for 26 years. I've asked him to come on today to walk through actionable steps on what you can do right now to save more and spend less. Hi, Dad slash Larry. Hello, Kelly. I expected you to say hello, Kelly slash daughter. Uh, hello, daughter. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on today. I'm excited to have you share your experience in the world of a financial advisor and how you guide people through the the scary and intimidating process that is saving. Um, so before we dive in, I would love for you to give a brief introduction to yourself and how you found yourself in this field of work. So that's a really great entry point, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about saving in the context of overall financial planning. I come from the belief that financial planning is for everyone. And I think, especially the young, that they should get a head start very early. And this really comes from my mother, who um, never went any further than the eighth grade. And she always saved um, from the time that I can remember as a young person. And uh, which allowed them to buy a house. My dad didn't make a lot of money. He was uh, in the Navy as a uh, chief petty officer eventually and then retired and went on to deputy sheriff. And yet I never felt poor, but we never had a lot of money. And as it turns out over time, you know, my, my mother ended up saving in a way that made them millionaires. And my dad to this day uh, says it wouldn't happen without without Rita. And you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I do. And um, so I joined the Navy when I was 17, followed my dad's footsteps. Um, had some success with money early on. Um, remembered Grandma Rita's uh, talk about saving 10%. So I always had a savings account from the very beginning. Even when I joined the Navy, though, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't making a lot of money. I can remember in 1973, that uh, I was bringing home $151 every two weeks. And uh, after I graduated from basic training, I couldn't even afford an apartment on my own. I, I was with three other people, and uh, that's the way I got started. Um, but I always had this belief that if I would learn something new every single day and try to structure my life around that learning process, that good things would happen. It did so in the Navy. The Navy sent me to nuclear power school. I uh, became a nuclear power plant operator. From there, I went on to actually uh, get additional education. They sent me to college at the University of New Mexico, completed degrees in business and political science. And it was from there that I started having experience with financial situations. I started working on rental property or property. And um, by the time I left New Mexico, we had three houses of which we sold two of the three. One we gave to my brother, uh, but two of the three we took the proceeds and bought Hawaii real estate and did very, very well there. I was still in the Navy. And from that point on, it just seemed like um, we, I had a knack for things financial and looked for a second career 
once I was going to leave the Navy, which I knew was going to happen at some point. I actually left when I was 40 and did 22 years and started a second career as a financial planner, went to San Diego State, got a master's degree in financial and tax planning, and the rest has been history. We've uh, started the practice with no clients. Today we have 230 families, and we manage or help guide them through all aspects of financial, not just their money, but many other things that are applied to financial planning. And there's six broad categories. Uh, cash flow planning is, is the one central to the discussion we're going to have today, and I'll come back to that in just a second, but also estate planning. Bad things happen to good people, and estate planning is one of the key things that puts in place these basic tenets that everybody should have, powers of attorney, financial powers of attorney, financial directives, healthcare power of attorney, that in case something does happen that's unplanned, that things are taken care of, whether you can make decisions for yourself or you can't. We also look at risk management. These are the things that go wrong in life, life, health, disability. Uh, we all take these for granted most every day. Most of us do anyways. Uh, but there are plenty of times when things don't go the right way. Flu, coronavirus, bad cold, unexpected cancer, work injury, automobile accident. These are all things that impact us in daily human life. And many times we hope they don't happen to us, but we don't take the time to actually plan, if they did happen, how we could keep ourselves and our family whole. We also look at tax planning. We can save a dollar's worth of taxes. It's like an instant return in your portfolio without taking any risk whatsoever. You don't have to invest in a stock, bond, or cash to earn a return on your money if you can save a dollar's worth of taxes. Then we go into those key points that many people like to talk about. The rage today is all about what's going on in the market. So there's investment planning, and then most people have the goal of retirement planning. So we'd look at that as well. So let's go back to cash flow now. Um, when you look at your life, especially as a young person or anybody, uh, our life is finite. And I like to kind of put it out there in, in three different categories. The first category is childhood, uh, where most of us have this um, safety umbrella around us. Some, some don't have an easy childhood. And I, I have clients that didn't have an easy childhood, but most of us have this umbrella around us that protects us and helps us get to a certain point in our lives for us to make decisions, hopefully good ones, uh, but not always. Uh, and we have these good decisions. We have a great platform to work on as we go through life. But going back to that phase, once we leave that phase, we start entering this working phase, the working years. And I like to say roughly last 40 years. 22 to 62, 25 to 65, if you go to graduate school, somewhere in there. And those working years are very, very important in our society because if you look at how our society is structured, we have two main tenets of how we grow up in this country. Our economic system is, is um, defined by capitalism, and that is the, where we take the formation of money, we mix it with an idea, we put some labor, we put some material in there, and all of a sudden we get a business and that business lets us generate a profit. And from that profit, we can pay more wages, buy more material, uh, invest, uh, pay ourselves more and hence grow. And that's what America is based on, our economic system. 
and that capitalism is the engine that's driven the prosperity in this country and has for several hundred years. So, but that's not what we practice as, as, uh, as people. As people, we're consumers, or we go by consumerism, which is different from capitalism. Consumerism tells you how you're going to spend your dollars. If you think about the dollars that you earn in your life, you can really only do one of two things. You can either spend it or you can save it. And we are really, really good at spending. And there's a reason why the system is designed for that to happen. You go back to the capitalism side. Again, you know, businesses uh, want you to buy their product or service so that they can generate a process and keep, keep it all going. Well, you as a consumer, they're going to look at you individually and they're going to do everything that they can to appeal to you in order to sp separate you from your dollars because that helps drive the system. In regards to what they are doing to try to appeal to you, what does that look like exactly? So if you were to think about the dollars that you earn and they come to you in a form of a paycheck or a gift, if mom and dad are giving them to you, what do you do with those dollars? Well, you look around in the human experience, you have five senses that drive you as a human being. Taste, touch, smell, sight. I can't remember the sound. fifth one. Sound, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the very one we're talking about right now. And if you look at our marketing systems that are in play in our country and throughout the world, um, those marketing systems are all appealing to those senses in every way, shape, or form. You cannot escape them. 724, 365, you are bombarded uh, with um, some input to your cursory senses uh, giving you an impulse to buy. I mean, you walk into um, a Starbucks and you smell the coffee or you walk past uh, uh, the uh, ba bagel shop and you smell the, the fresh bagels in there. Or uh, you walk into your favorite restaurant and there's just this wafting of uh, great aromas coming across. Or you walk by a favorite department store um, uh, not as often as we used to because we're shopping online now. So there's a, you know, a different stigma attached to that. But still, uh, there are window displays. Why are there window displays? They're appealing to your sight. They want you to stop and look and go in and touch and feel and try the thing on. And the whole goal is to do what? Okay. To separate you from your dollars. Okay? Now, this, this satisfies an inner core thing in us as human beings. It gives us a sense of satisfaction that we own these things. But in reality, is that really what's best for us over time? And Go ahead and finish your okay. And my answer is, well, we have to somehow get to this balancing proposition to where we're consuming and saving at the same time instead of consuming and then waiting till the end of the year and figuring out if there's anything left over to save. And very often, guess what happens? There's nothing there's left. Not. And I think that this is something that I, and I know that you know, because we have talked a lot about my savings in the past and you have gotten me to the point where I have been able to now save over six figures, which was my first milestone goal for, for me personally. But I do live within a generation where we are driven by the senses. It is easy for us to think, I deserve this. I need this. I want this. And to be able to detach from the money that you have and spend it on an experience, spend it on a material item, spend it on that $6 coffee 
so what is the framework in trying to balance the logic and understand it is okay to enjoy some things, but I also do need to save because I feel like at a core, we do, we all know that we should probably save. We all know these things. We know that this will probably yield some type of safety or freedom in the future, yet it's really hard to execute. So little darling, I would tell <laughs> you that your generation has nothing on my generation when it comes to spending. We were the uh, original uh, live for today, free love generation. And I can prove that to you in that uh, baby boomers now are halfway through their retirement uh, age, uh, wicket of age 65. So half are retired, half are not. Uh, and it's scary for my demographic. 71% have less than $50,000 saved, which means they're going to work till the day they drop, or they're going to be living on a very, very low income, maybe just social security only, and uh, not have a very good life uh, for the remaining third of their life. It's really sad, actually, when you think about it. And um, even in our practice, we're aware of this, and uh, we have uh, developed the mantra that we will sit with anyone uh, who will listen and take them through our six our PowerPoint slides and go through the six principles of financial planning, even if they don't become our client. We feel incumbent upon educating uh, anyone who will listen, um, about why it's so important to flip that dynamic a little bit instead of spend, spend, spend to maybe start carving off and saving up front and then spending what's left. And what we're really after when we do that is if we can get people to save in their 401ks or their work-sponsored retirement plans, we can get them to save in their Roth IRAs, so that's two separate accounts, and we can get them to build their emergency account because life never goes as planned. There's always something that comes along. Coronavirus is not an exception. It's, it's one of many things that happen in life that can cause a disturbance in a plan or like a deep recession that happened in 2008 and 9. And recessions are part of our business cycle. There's going to be many, many more. Somebody who's 25 can probably expect to experience 8 to 16 more recessions in their lifespan. And when we have a recession, the economy slows down, economy slows down, businesses have less profit, businesses have less profit, they're going to do what? They're going to start cutting expenses, and the biggest expense that they have is labor. And so when they start cutting labor, People then start to lose their homes, they can't feed their families, they start to have financial problems, and things don't work out very well. Again, going back to that saving versus spending thing, I think that's the solution, really, when it comes down to it. And again, if we can get people to save first, save in the 401ks, save in the IRAs, save in the emergency accounts, and then spend what's left, they can spend everything that's left and they don't have to worry about it. And they will have those other financial assets to back them up when the rough, time come, when the rough times come or when it's time to implement that third phase of life, which we like to call the advocacy phase after the working years. So let's talk about what this would actually look like in action. I remember you and I talked about this a few days back of why people... Again, I think this is something that we as humans know that we should do, yet it's really hard to do. And I remember you mentioning that a lot of people who do come to you and you do run through these initial presentations actually don't end up following through and working with you or taking the steps to actually save because it's holding a mirror up to them 
and showing, you know, here are some potential flaws for lack of better words on how I could be doing something better. And people don't want to acknowledge that. So how do you navigate through getting someone past that initial hump and being okay with changing and it might not be an overnight thing, but what small steps can they take to get there? So generally what we see for the young age demographic is that there are two two different kinds of cohorts for people who are not saving and why they're not saving. One is, is that it's very, very tough for them to save because one, they're consuming everything, but in addition to that, they've overconsumed. And what I mean by overconsumed is that they've taken on debt levels or uh, the uh, future spending that's been consumed in the past. And so they're now obligating some of their future income in order to satisfy this, uh, this, these debt levels. And so this is very, very uh, tough situation uh, for people to save. And so we have a set of strategies for that group of people um, and try to help them get out of debt. But again, and I like to tell this to everyone, is that, um, you know, we're no more than a guidance counselor when it really comes right down to it. Maybe maybe a tiny, tiny bit psychologist, very tiny, but guidance counselor for sure. And that the success of anybody's saving or spending plan is going to be 80% driven by their behavior, not what we do, and 20% by what we say. We can give them the tools, we can tell them what to do, we can show them what to do, but really it's up to them to do it. So uh, when it comes to high debt levels, um, you, you can start by um, trying to put as much money as possible at the smallest debt uh, that you have and to pay that one off as quickly as possible so that you can, once you satisfy that one, then you can then roll that payment to the next debt or you can start with the highest cost debt that you have, put as much money to that one as you can, and thereby lower the uh, total amount that you're paying to satisfy debt. But again, even helping people understand a budget and how to sit down and structure that can be an insurmountable fact for some people. We have a tool that helps that, but again, it really boils down to consumer behavior and whether or not they really want to change. The second group is uh, the one that... Um, is not in as desperate a shape, who is uh, just really in the experience economy um, and uh, want to live life now. And there's there's a great argument for that because when you get to be 70 or 80, uh, you know, life is not as vibrant as it, as it, as it could be when you're younger. Uh, so traveling when you're younger m might be a great way to go, but it's got to be a balancing act in our opinion. Uh, again, if we can get them to fully fund their 401ks, their IRAs, their emergency accounts, it's a great place to start. Now, how does anybody do this, absent of debt? Again, we make consumer choices every single day. So I still make my own coffee. I very rarely go in a Starbucks. I could afford to go in Starbucks 10 times a day if I wanted to, but I don't. And it's just a simple thing for me uh, many people view Starbucks as their maybe not even guilty pleasure, but I deserve this kind of reward on a daily basis. But you really have to understand that a 3 or $4 beverage every single day adds up over time, especially if you do it two or three times a day and you do it every week and you do it every month. Now you're talking about a coffee or beverage bill that could run several hundred, if, if not more, per month. And so... Maybe you cut yourself down to one or two Starbucks per week and you make your beverages at home. You take your water bottle from home. Uh, you make your chai tea at home and you take it in your little thermos. And all of a sudden, now the difference from when you, between what you were spending at Starbucks 
versus what you're doing and making your beverages at home, that's money that's now freed up to satisfy one of those savings goals that I was talking about. And you start to look at all of these different categories of spending that you're doing in your own personal life, whether it's eating out. If you're one of those people that likes to eat out for lunch every day, maybe you cut back to where you eat out to lunch once or twice a week and you take your lunch two or three times, much cheaper option. Uh, same thing with eating out, maybe cooking at home is not something you like to do, but there's fun to some extent for some people at cooking at <laughs> for home. For you, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, or you. And, uh, you know, finding a new simple recipe that you can do with yourself, your dog or your partner. Um, it could be a rewarding experience and learn to save you money. And you can take that difference and then start putting it towards these goals. Why are these goals so important? And it's the power of time, power of compound interest. If I can get you saving when you're in your teen years, it makes a huge difference uh, when you get to be 50 or 60. That's like what we like to call optionality comes into play. You might set up your retirement plan for 62, but just like what's happened with several of my clients that I started with in the 90s uh, with this long bull market that we've had, uh, they are now uh, have optionality to retire early. And we are seeing that uh, with several clients today. So I can, I've seen it from the very beginning. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen what works. I've seen what doesn't work. Uh, looking at all of the different families as our clients and also all of the ones that came in that aren't our clients, uh, we've probably pretty much seen everything that's out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's hope for everyone, in my opinion. So it sounds like when you think about saving, it really comes down to compromising with yourself and seeing what you, you know, in a sense, need to prioritize over, over the other and, and sense of understanding, OK, I can still get my six dollar coffee, but instead of five days a week, I'm going to get it, you know, one day out of this work week versus this five. And then you'll start to see that grow over time and then maybe be able to shift those spending habits to where you are comfortable having coffee at home every single day of the week. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned that, Kelly, when you look at what you can do with your dollars, it's saving versus spending. So it's kind of on a fulcrum. The higher you are on consumption, the lower you'll be on savings. Uh, the higher you are on savings, the lower you'll be on consumption. Uh, for all of us, we have to find that median where we're happy with both. Uh, and again, flipping that dynamic instead of consuming first and saving second, uh, my goal is to get you to save first and then consume second. Uh, if, if you can save, in uh, in fully fund your 401k, your IRA, and your emergency account, and you want to go to Starbucks 10 times a week, at that point, go for it. I'm all for it. But I'm really trying to get you to prioritize and to balance things in a way. Another way to do it in order to be able to consume more is to raise your income. There's really only three ways to do that, too. Education, alternative career path, experience. So those three things come into play. Uh, if you're a younger person and even a middle-aged person, uh, thinking about those and how you might apply those to uh, raise your income thresholds so that you can both consume and save more. Do you ever run across individuals who are potentially lower on the income level? Their saving has, or their rather their spending has been pretty high and they just say, I feel like at the end of the month, I can only save $30 or $50. What's the point? So I would say to that person that uh, even if you could only start with $10, starting with something uh, is very empowering. Because if you do that consistently over time, 
and then you find a way in a future week to save an extra $2. And then in a future week from that, you find a way to save an extra $4. Before you know it, you're up to $25 a month. And then who knows, a new job comes along, a, perhaps a pay raise. Anytime a pay raise or a new job or a promotion comes along, I, if somebody's not at their maximum savings goal, I always encourage them to save 50% of that new pay raise or that new increase in income and consume the other 50%. They've, they've not learned to live off of that yet, so it's a very, very painless way in order for you to achieve your savings goals. It almost sounds like it's less about the benefit of saving these small odds and ends dollars amount, but more so building the muscle of saving itself, because it sounds like the more you do save and the more you get comfortable with saving, yes, not only are you building your emergency fund or your Roth IRA or what have you, but you're building that muscle and that trust muscle within yourself of here I am working towards something and I'm seeing the success from that happening. I think that's a great analogy. And I think that's totally appropriate. And I think the more you do it and the and the more that happens, uh, just like you noticed for yourself, you had a goal, uh, a dollar amount goal. Uh, it didn't start out there, but you started saving, 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 and all of a sudden it, it happened. And this whole power of time, power of compound interest is very, very powerful. And what that means essentially is that money doesn't grow in a straight line. It grows exponentially. In other words, the more that you have, the faster it grows. I'll give you an example, and I use this with everybody that we meet. If you gave me $10,000 to invest, or it could be any number, but let's say 10000 just so we keep the math simple, and uh, we were to use the rule of 72 and how fast the money were to double. Really quickly, can mm -hmm. you explain the rule of 72? Well, the rule of 72 really is just a simple algebraic equation that says uh, how fast your money will double. And it takes into account the number of years that you have and the interest rate that the money grows at. So I'll give you an example that we like to use so that you can follow along. If, if you were to give me $10,000 and you were to give me a six-year time horizon and I could grow it at 12% interest, uh, six years into 72 means my money should double uh, every, how often? Six years. Okay. So uh, that's basically how it works. And so if you gave me $10,000 and you gave me that six years and I could grow it at 12%, it should be $20,000 at the end of the six years. Now look what happens if we apply that same formula, but only at a different starting point. Now instead of starting with 10,000, we started with the million. We had the same 6%, the same, I'm sorry, the same six years, the same 12%. At the end of that time period, six years, we have $2 million. The money doubled again, but instead of the growth being $10,000 as in the first example, now the growth is a million dollars. It's the exact same scenario. So my objective and my challenge to every prospect and client that we work with, right, is to get to the first million so you can take advantage of the next double or to get to the first 10,000 so you can get to 20,000. And then from 20,000, you get to 40,000, 40,000 to 80,000, 80,000 to 160, 160,000 to 320, 320 to 640. And then lo and behold, look what happens. The next double at 640 gives you 1.28 million. So uh, we have many, many examples in our client base of where that's happening. One of my favorite ones is one that I'm working with right now. Uh, I have uh, two nurses that are getting ready to retire. 
I started working with them in 1998. <clears throat> they really weren't good prospects for me. They had $35,000 between the two of them and their 401k program. So they really had no assets to give me to manage. But um, they seemed so earnest that they wanted to develop their future that I took them on as clients. And I told them, I said, if you save in the accounts that I'm having you save in, I'm not going to charge you a financial planning fee. I'll have you come back in a year. We'll talk about where you are. And if you're serious, then I'll take you on as a client and uh, we'll, we'll see where you are. Well, lo and behold, 20 years later, uh, they came in for review last year. They're at $2.4 million. Now that happened not because they won the lottery, not because they got a big inheritance, not because uh, they started a business, but because they were disciplined about taking uh, into stride uh, the, the uh, conscripts that we showed them about why it's important to save. And they fully funded their retirement plans, and they're at $2.4 million, and their retirement plan that we did develop, they're 56 and 53 right now, had them retiring at 62 and 69, and I uh, told Janice, I said, look, if you, um, it's, it's very likely, remember I was telling you about the power of time, power of compound interest and doubling, it's very likely we could get another doubling here uh, by the time when you hit your retirement age that you've projected at 62, and that would put you somewhere in the four and a half to $5 million range. And I can remember her looking at me and her eyes being very, very wide and saying, I don't think we need that much money. And so uh, the challenge was then for them to go out and figure out where they wanted to live, what advocacy, what the retirement, what the retirement life was going to look like. And she came back to me about three months later and said, "I think we need about ten thousand dollars per month." And you know, when we in encapsulated Social Security and their other uh, retirement income sources, uh, they are in fact going to retire early. So when I say optionality, I've mentioned that word a couple of times. It's not about just hitting a dollar amount. It's not about just hitting a specific age, but maybe it's a combination of those factors that gives you choice in your life, which you didn't have before. And that's in fact what they're doing. They're, they're now making a choice to leave the workforce early and uh, put um, optionality in their life to now pursue their advocacy uh, whatever that is in retirement. I think that's the biggest takeaway that I've learned from building that savings muscle within myself is that a lot of people will say, you know, well, money doesn't give you happiness or, you know, if you save all this money, it, you know, what does that do for you? And I think for me, just the power of freedom of being able to have those options, being able to potentially retire at a younger age if I want to, or maybe not. And maybe it's something that I do want to wait for that next double. So I think holding on to the idea of it providing options, like you mentioned, and freedom is so powerful. I completely agree with you. But I would also say to the, the accumulators, the people that are choosing to save now, it is also giving them a degree of freedom because they are not being chained to what the future holds. They are building their future. They know it's going to happen based point. on their behavior. Do you believe in the power of visualizing, whether that's visualizing a monetary amount to work towards or visualizing saving for the house that you want, you know, whatever it is to help you drive towards a certain goal? Because I have found personally, you know, before working with you and, and mapping out a savings goal, it is really hard to, to save to, if you don't have an idea of what you're saving for, it kind of makes it feel less tangible and less 
I don't want to say attainable, but it is, it is one of those things where when we started working towards a specific goal, it was more motivating. Goals can be motivating, but they can also be discouraging if they seem to be slipping away. That's why you need to set your goals that are incrementally attainable and to set up the little victories that happen over time. You know, again, increasing your savings rate by 5 or $10 is, is just as important psychologically uh, because you're moving towards that goal. Uh, it doesn't have to be 50 or $100 at a time. Um, because I've had single women parents actually uh, not able to save anything uh, get to where they're saving several hundred dollars per month. And that's that at some point will help them uh, uh, throughout their life. I, I, I've guaranteed it will. The two nurse examples that I've had, I probably have 12 clients in that exact same situation that with uh, the economy growing as long as it has been growing um, that we're where we're, we're at. But to your point, Kelly, about visualization, there's two constructs really that I like to say that each human being should should look at. It isn't just visualization, but internalization. And so what does that mean? It means grabbing that goal and owning that goal, making it part of your life energy, making it part of how you go about things, and then visualizing as to what it can do for you or the optionality that it can give you at some point in the future. If you can learn as a person to internalize and visualize in a very positive way, um, not negative, because that, that can also work against you and give you anxiety if you internalize on the negative side. But if you can internalize on the positive side about, yes, I can do this, and I'm going to incrementally attack this, and this is what I want to get to. Those two constructs are very, very powerful, I think, in anybody's financial plan or in life in general. Do you have any other examples and clients that you have worked with, whether it be in the 20s or the 30s, and how you've been able to help them grow their savings and how you have been able to build those incremental moments? So many of our clients that are more mature, that may be uh, parents uh, that are in their 50s or 60s or even grandparents in their 60s and 70s, and when we go through these principles with them, they've been working with us for some time and they know this, from time to time when they come in for review, I have to go back and re-anchor them in, in some of the things that we talk about. And when I do that, I go, you know, this is, um, I tell them, I say, you know, there's only 77,000 certified financial planners in the United States of America. There's, it's one for every roughly 4,000 people. And I said, there's, it's just no way we could all, each planner can meet with 4,000 people. It can't happen. And so we have to extend ourselves and we have, the way we can extend ourselves is through you, through the parents, through the grandparents, by teaching you these uh, principles, taking these slides home, showing them to your children, showing them to your grandchildren, showing them to your peers, showing them to anybody who'll listen. And uh, if, if you like, uh, you can invite them to come into our conference room and we will, uh, you know, bring a pizza in for the young people and go through these slides and do it in their language uh, so that it makes sense to them. We almost always script the uh, presentation to uh, the demographic that we're dealing with. We it wouldn't be appropriate for me to do it any other way. And we have had much success with getting our parents' children and uh, grandparents' children uh, to start saving at a young, early age, to think about money, to think about the powers, to having their health care power of attorney all set up. Many parents even make the assumption that once their child turns 18, they're still able to make decisions for them. But very often in the states that you reside in, 
the state actually has that power at that point if those children can't make decisions for themselves. And so you, you end up putting yourself in a gray area if you don't have those documents in place. So uh, to, we, even though those children aren't, aren't legitimate prospects for us as clients, uh, it's part of what we do uh, in order to try to better the world. And, and it isn't just them. You know from experience, Kelly, that we've given this presentation to other work groups that you've been around. I can't remember if it was Dropbox or which one it was. but It was, it was Dropbox. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was okay. very, every single person. So to provide some context at the last company that I was working at, I did bring my dad in to present to probably 20 people who were all, you know, early, mid, late 20s on essentially what we talked about today and running through this type of presentation and every single person found it so impactful because again, I think we all know as humans, it's something that we should work towards, but it's hard to know. It's almost like you don't know what you don't know. So having some type of guidance in a person who is specialized in that field helped pave the path in some type of way was just a really rewarding experience. Well, with that, is there, are there any other wise words of wisdom or any last thoughts that you would like to share in terms of working to save or just embracing the mentality of saving first, spending second? Yeah, I would just tell you that, you know, life, we all take it for granted. We're going to wake up tomorrow and the days will go on and each successful day will happen. Um, but it truly is a gift. Um, in the context of the age of the earth and human structure here on, on earth, it's probably not even measurable in the in the whole uh, Earth's existence. I'm told the Earth is some four four billion years old, and even if you assume humans have been here twenty thousand years, if you put that on a line diagram, you wouldn't even be able to see the line. So my point to you is is that uh, life is short, um, but it isn't just today. It's you also have to think about all of the days in your life. Uh, regardless of how many there are going to be, and nobody knows that exact number, we can make an estimate, and I could get into the science of that with actuarial studies and bell curve distributions, but that would be boring. Uh, so I would tell you that, um, um, you know, when it comes to money and resources, our labor is is what's truly valuable in the economy, um, and and it's up to us to determine the value of that labor, um, but there's going to come a time when we either do not want to or will not be able to use our labor to provide us an income. And uh, if you're not ready for that, um, it can really lead to a life that's not very much fun for the conceivably the most meaningful and thoughtful years of your life. Well, thank you, Dad, for, for coming on. It was really great to have you here and to share your story and your expertise in this field. I know it's been hugely impactful for me. So I'm glad that I'm able to share your story along with, again, the, the information that you guide your clients through to everyone listening. So thank you for coming on. Where can people find you or get in contact with you if they wanted to reach out about your services? So we're um, actually based in Southern California in San Diego County in a little town called Poway, just adjacent to the northeast side of San Diego. Um, we have a presence across the United States. You can reach us at www.capitalthin.com. We're happy to talk to anybody, happy to provide, be a guidance counselor. Uh, we have uh, multiple uh, certified financial planners on staff and there probably isn't really 
very many financial situations that we can't provide some level of guidance on that could help uh, help you better your situation. Remember, we're just the guidance counselor. 80% of the success of your plan is really determined by your behavior. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure. And thank you everyone for, for listening today. For all the latest updates, you can follow along on Instagram at Humanium Podcast. You can direct message me there with any questions or comments about today's episode. Also, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you found this podcast. I look forward to sharing more about the human experience next week. This is Humanium. Humanium.